welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll ask if Western military support and a new Prime Minister in Baghdad can turn the tide against ISIS in Iraq. And we hear from Pakistan on a high-stakes effort by former cricket star Imran Khan to bring down the government of Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. But we begin in Ferguson, Missouri, where the police killing of Michael Brown, an unarmed black teenager, has sparked more than 10 days of unrest, with police using tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse protesters. After heavy-handed police tactics seemed to fuel tensions last week, Missouri Governor Jay Nixon replaced local officers with members of the Highway Patrol, and this week he sent in the National Guard. President Barack Obama has called for calm, and the Justice Department has launched an investigation into the circumstances surrounding Michael Brown's shooting. But there's no sign of an end to the unrest. I'm joined on the line now by Boston Globe writer and frequent Irish Times contributor Kevin Cullen. Kevin, why has the killing of Michael Brown sparked such anger? Well, Dennis, if you look at Ferguson, it is sort of an anomaly in, in American life right now. Um, in fact, some of the images people have noted reminded them of the civil rights movement and the tumult of that era in the 60s. One of the things we learned from not only the civil rights protest and the and the way the heavy-handed tactics of the police, particularly in the southern states, addressing it, but then with the riots that followed in the late 60s um, after the killing of Martin Luther King Jr., we realized that it, it made absolutely no sense to have uh, populations being policed by uh, police officers who don't look like them, who don't come from their same communities. And in almost every major American city, and even in small cities, where there were populations of, of folks that weren't white, the police forces began to resemble more greatly those communities. Now, that has not happened in Ferguson, and that is uh, both an anomaly, but it's also something that is very easily uh, remedied. But they have not got around to keeping up with the demographic changes in Ferguson, which is a fairly small suburb of St. Louis. Now, after the shooting, the authorities seem to have made a bad situation worse. I mean, partly this is, as you say, is because of the makeup of the local force. But what else did the authorities do wrong? Well, I think it was, they, they, they made something of a military response. Now, this is also a peculiarity here in very many American communities since 9-11. After 9-11, even small communities across America were able to access fundings, and what they basically did was militarize their police forces. So if you saw the images in Ferguson, the first thing that small department did was, was send their police officers out there looking like paramilitary members or like just somebody in an army. And you will go, Dennis, if you go across America, you go into these small towns, 15, 20,000 people, and they have armored personnel carriers, and they have accessed them since 9-11, sort of in this rush, the hysteria after a terroristic attack. There was this, they basically militarized police forces everywhere, and Ferguson is one of those places. Now, they tried everything from standing down uh, the local police force and demilitarizing the police presence, and then they imposed a curfew, then they lifted the curfew, and now they're putting the National Guard in. But nothing seems to be able to stop this unrest. No, and, and that's because there are several agendas at, at work. First of all, people in Ferguson have what, by all accounts, 
are legitimate grievances against the police force. Again, you're talking about a population that's approximately 70% African American being policed by a, a police force that's something like 95% white. That is a, that's a prescription for disaster in any kind of chaotic, chaotic situation. But when the governor, Jay Nixon, was able to bring in uh, Rod Johnson, who was a, a captain with the Missouri Highway Patrol, he initially made real progress with the local folks because he said all the right things. They were looking up at a, at a, you know, a African-American commander who spoke to the community. But by that time, Dennis, there were definitely people that came in from other parts of the country uh, call them what you want. They could be called agitators. They could be provocateurs. And they are there to cause the trouble. We actually have a, a story in the Boston Globe today filed by Akila Johnson, one of our reporters. And she tried to try to address that, that there, there are three levels of, of groups there. There are people that are from Ferguson. There are people that are there showing solidarity on the civil rights moment. And then there are outside agitators. And it appears to be mostly the outside agitators with a few angry local kids who are going at the police. And now they'll be going at the National Guard tonight. It is not a good situation. And as you mentioned, this is actually literally drawn the President of the United States and on Wednesday, the Attorney General, Eric Holder, who also happens to be African-American, will be there. And uh, now, will their presence, uh, will, will Eric Holder's presence do anything to ease the tensions, or what is it going to take to resolve this? I, I can't see why, you know, Eric Holder would have any more influence on the, on the population that's deciding to agitate violently than a guy like Ron Johnson. Well, I just don't see that. But, um, you know, it, it also shows, Dennis, that, you know, there are all these folks who wrote these sort of, I would call them neocon views of when uh, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, it was the end of racism. And I, I just find that inherently amusing because throughout this, and sad, because throughout his, his tenure as, as president, um, he keeps getting dragged into these local controversies that involve race. I don't know if you recall in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when uh, Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates, the, the professor there, the African-American professor, was arrested by a white police officer. And the president got himself involved. He brought them down to Washington. He brought them to the White House for a beer summit to talk about the problems. And so, you know, throughout American history, particularly in the last 50 years, we've had this contentious point of African-American men and police forces across the United States. And, can, and like I said, it's not just in backwater places like Ferguson, Missouri. It happened in Cambridge, Mass., you know, two blocks from the campus of Harvard University. This is a recurring theme in America, the idea of, of white police officers confronting African-American men and then being put under a different uh, myop. Uh, microscope than an ordinary, say, a white guy or a white woman or even African-American woman. It is always one of the most contentious things in America, and it will be <laughs> for the, as long as I'm alive. And, and uh, Kevin, as you say, uh, Barack Obama, although he actually came to prominence talking about an America where which was not going to be a black America or a white America or a red America or a blue America, but one United States of America. Nonetheless, he's been constantly dragged back into these uh, controversies. But when he was elected in 2008, this, uh, this moment was widely perceived as a transformative event for African Americans. How transformative has it been where African Americans are concerned? I think it's transformative for a lot of African Americans who are middle class and upper middle class 
or who like Barack Obama, or for example, our our governor here in Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, you know, African American men who came from modest backgrounds, but were able to access you know extraordinary high levels of education, be it Milton Academy or Harvard University. Those people have definitely prospered and and will continue to prosper. And I think the election of Barack Obama, in some respects, was a confirmation that there is a, a viable, strong. Uh, black middle class, but then we don't talk about class in America, Dennis. You folks in Ireland and Europe talk about class every day. We don't talk about it because I think it was George W. Bush. Oh no, I think it was must have been his father who said there is no class in America, which is preposterous. I mean, the reality is the oldest form of affirmative action, which conservatives in America get upset about, exists in the Ivy League. Where, where people who you know went to that school are considered legacies, and they get into that school, and so it is you know it it is a contradiction. But I think when we talk about the people who are really upset in Ferguson, we're talking about lower, you know, working class, working poor African American men who, when they get stopped on the street by the police, there's an assumption they've done something wrong. Now, in this kid's case, he may in fact have done something wrong. Michael Brown, but in fact, that isn't why he was stopped by the police officer. He was actually in the street, and uh, the police officer allegedly decided that he had not moved quickly enough to get off the street. So, it is, it, like I said, I think we we don't we underestimate the class divisions in our in, in our country, and we kind of focus on race because that's easier to speak about. Oh, Kevin Cullen, thank you. Kurdish Peshmerga fighters and Iraqi troops this week recaptured an important dam near Mosul from the radical Sunni militants of the Islamic State, also known as ISIS. President Barack Obama hailed the recapture of the dam as a major step forward in defeating the militants, but ISIS is still in control of Mosul itself, Iraq's second biggest city, as well as large parts of northwestern Iraq and parts of Syria. This military setback for ISIS follows the departure of Nouri al-Maliki as Iraq's prime minister. Mr. Maliki's sectarian approach was widely blamed for alienating Iraq's Sunni minority and boosting support from militant groups like ISIS. But will his successor, Haider al-Abadi, be able to heal Iraq's divisions? And how far are the Western powers willing to go to defeat ISIS on the battlefield? To discuss all this, I'm joined here in studio by Vincent Durack, a lecturer in Middle East politics at University College Dublin, and from Nicosia by the Irish Times Middle East analyst Michael Jansen. Michael Jansen, can I ask you first, how significant are these latest events on the battlefield? Well, they are the first major reverses that ISIS has um, uh, encountered. I mean, particularly taking back the Mosul Dam. Uh, which supplies electricity to a large area in northern Iraq. Also, uh, Iraqi army troops plus uh, Peshmerga forces are tackling um, ISIS uh, fighters in Tikrit, which is the hometown of former President Saddam Hussein. And Tikrit has been under ISIS for quite some time. Uh, This is, a, I think, a major reverse for them, as I said. And in addition to that, um, earlier this, uh, this week, uh, members of uh, some prominent Sunni tribes decided to t- take up arms against ISIS. Now, these tribes are based in Anbar province, which is the largest of Iraq's province. It's on the west, and um, 
it borders Jordan and Syria. And so this also is a very important development. It depends, of course, on how well these tribal fighters are armed and whether they are well commanded. They did uh, manage to tackle al-Qaeda during the U.S. surge in Iraq uh, between 2006 and 2008, and they were a potent force at that time, but they have been um, disbanded and um, ignored since then. But as I said, I think the tribal defections may also make a major um, difference to the campaign to crush or at least contain ISIS. Now, ISIS, of course, operates not just in Iraq, but also in Syria. And in Syria, President Bashar al-Assad's forces also seem to be taking a rather tougher line of action against ISIS than they have been until now. Uh, this is true, uh, because on the strategic plane, um, Assad's forces have tried to secure uh, Damascus and its uh, surroundings, and also the um, border with Lebanon, across which many um, of these radical fighters have uh, flowed into Syria. Now, the point is that Assad is now uh, pretty strong in the Damascus region. He, he, his forces took out one of the major suburbs, which were held by some other um, fundamentalist groups last week, and so he can now turn his attention to ISIS. Uh, the point is ISIS is well dug in in the north and the north-central area, particularly in Raqqa, which is the capital of Raqqa province, which is actually the only uh, provincial capital held by the rebels. Um, and uh, ISIS is also uh, under fire from some of the other groups uh, in that area, mainly uh, fundamentalist groups which compete with ISIS. Michael, there are reports this week that ISIS recruited 6,000 new fighters in the past month, but their numbers are still very, very small when you compare them to the size of the Iraqi army or to the Syrian armed forces. How have they managed to be so successful? Well, they're successful because they, um, they actually piggyback into uh, situations where, with other groups um, by uh, joining other forces in taking territory. And then they eventually kick out the others. So, uh, and they also have uh, more money and more arms than any of the other groups. And this money and the arms have been supplied by Qatar and Saudi Arabia and also private citizens in the Gulf, particularly Kuwait, which actually have funded specific campaigns undertaken by ISIS forces. Uh, Vincent Jurek, the world has welcomed the departure of Nouri al-Maliki as Iraq's prime minister. How much difference can his successor make? Well, certainly there's a great deal of hope vested in the notion that uh, the new Prime Minister-designate uh, Abadi can, can make a great deal of difference to the situation. Um, I think one of the questions has to be uh, as to how simplistic those expectations are. Uh, it's a very different thing to move from the generalised um, realisation that al-Maliki was an obstacle to overtures to Sunnis and other 
uh, groups in Iraq to an assumption that his removal ipso facto is then going to lead to an improvement in the situation. And I wonder if there are, at least on, in some quarters, uh, overly optimistic expectations that the sorts of things that need to be done can be done readily and can be done in a short space of time. And uh, as Michael has said, um, ISIS draws its support um, not just from its core uh, constituent parts, but from uh, a receptivity to what it does and what it represents uh, in, in Iraq and indeed in Syria uh, also. And it's addressing the causes of that receptivity to what is clearly a, a violent and extreme organisation, but nonetheless one that represents an assertion of a form of, of Sunni identity, um, addressing the causes of receptivity to what ISIS represents. Um, that's a much longer struggle than simply you know, waving a magic wand on arrival in office. And Hyder al-Abadi comes from the same Shia party that Maliki came from. What kind of pressures does he have uh, from the Shia community uh, to uh, th that might, uh, in a way, uh, block some room for manoeuvre that he would have in terms of dealing with the Sunni? Well, I think there's a, a great deal of pressure on him, a great deal of conflicting pressure, because from the point of view of the US, of course, he is, is, is somehow uh, deemed to, to represent uh, inclusivity and dialogue. Um, Nonetheless, he comes from a political party, uh, the Dawa party, uh, which is Shiite, which is extremely secretive in its function, functioning, uh, which has had in the past close, we can overstate them, but nonetheless close ties to Iran, um, whose objectives in Iraq clearly are uh, in many respects significantly at odds with those of the US, albeit both are committed to some uh, persistent unitary state. So there's a great deal of pressure from within and without on Abadi and those pressures by no means pull in the same direction. Uh, the uh, US policy towards Iraq uh, has been uh, confusing to say the least and or at least it's certainly been somewhat ambiguous. How far are the Americans and the other Western powers prepared to go to defeat ISIS in Iraq? It's a, it's a huge question and it is worth noting just to, if I may roll back a little um, in the uh, extent to which uh, al-Maliki has been identified as the cause of all the problems of Iraq uh, in recent times. He, of course, inherited an Iraq that had been devastated and indeed taken apart in many respects by the US invasion. So without being too simplistic about that, uh, responsibility for what he inherited or the situation uh, into which he arrived um, lies elsewhere. Um, US policy is contradictory. It's contradictory because in the first instance, the US is committed to uh, maintaining a unitary state, which it has done a great deal to to unravel in the first place in, in 2003 and afterwards. Um, it's committed to pressuring the new prime minister to reach out to Sunnis, even though the US itself uh, oversaw that process of debathification that many see as having been disastrous for the country and alienating unnecessarily a great deal of the, the Sunni minority. Um, but in the immediate term, it's also ambiguous already in the sense that, for instance, if you take the attack uh, on the, the, the insurgents at the Mosul Dam, Obama initially talked about relieving the pressure on Mount Sinjar, uh, on the Yazidi population, uh, a very localised, if you like, intervention on the part of the US. He justified US involvement in the air support for the, the most recent operation on the basis of a potential threat to Baghdad, which is several hundred miles away. 
already you can feel that in the US there's concern at you know the, the, the dread cliche mission creep and likewise in the, the UK where uh, Cameron is now coming under pressure to identify precisely what the lines of engagement are as it were for the UK also. Um, the fear must be that even though it's the last thing Obama wants, if this uh, is a situation which cannot be addressed by the the armed forces of Iraq without the involvement of the Kurds. And you'd have to wonder how much beyond their immediate zone of operation the Kurdish Peshmerga will operate. Um, is there a danger of the US uh, uh, and the UK being drawn into uh, a much messier long-term situation? And one thing that they do seem to agree on, the uh, the Americans and also the French, is the the uh, the benefits of arming the Kurds. Are there risks involved in arming the Kurds? Well, there are, and this is, is another of the, the ambiguities or paradoxes of uh, US policy and indeed Western policy in Iraq more generally, because uh, Maliki, again, is deemed to have been this divisive force, uh, this sectarian uh, or this, this this embodiment of sectarianism in Iraq. But of course, Western policy for a long time um, has identified the KRG, the Kurdish regional government, as stable, the Kurdish region as a model. It has its problems, obviously, but as compared to the rest of the country, um, there's a certain logic to this. But of course, in doing that and in uh, addressing, uh, rebalancing, if you like, you know, decades of abandoning Kurdish aspirations, the West has in turn fomented something like separatist aspirations amongst the Kurds, necessarily so, whether intentionally or not. So this is is another paradox. To deal with ISIS, uh, you strengthen the Kurds, who themselves are pulling away from the central state. In Iraq, the West is backing the Kurds, as you say, and the Iraqi government against ISIS. But in Syria, the West is on the same side as ISIS in the sense that they are both seeking the defeat of Bashar al-Assad's regime. Is that a problem? It, absolutely, it's a problem. And again, as, as Michael has, has touched on this uh, it, when she talked about regional support for, for ISIS, because, of course, this is where the situation in uh, Iraq is not containable to Iraq and is in- inextricably linked to, to Syria. ISIS claim, of course, not to recognise any border in the first place. But what you have is a situation where ISIS emerges out of this quagmire of Western and indeed regional support for opposition to Bashar al-Assad. Um, direct Western support for ISIS is, is not part of the equation, but the support of the allies of the US in the region, uh, private and state or parastatal uh, for ISIS and for similar um, radical jihadist groups is part of the problem. And retaining a focus on removing Assad, supporting those who are opposed to him, um, while countering the threat of ISIS in Iraq uh, is going to be a very, very difficult juggling act for all concerned. And the, the real question now is whether or not there is any reappraisal in much broader terms uh, of what's going on in Syria, um, given the threat. Michael Jansen, do you see any prospect of a reappraisal regionally of the situation in Syria and of the, their determination to remove Assad? Well, I don't see this, um, because uh, the Obama administration hasn't admitted that it has made a mistake uh, f- f- uh, f- by backing all these... Uh, multitude of groups which are backing Assad, uh, uh, trying to uh, throw out Assad in Syria. 
The problem is that these groups over time have been uh, consolidated into fundamentalist uh, units or formations, including ISIS and including the Islamic Front and other groups. Uh, This is something which the Americans have failed to understand, which is they, they keep speaking about moderates, and there are no moderates left in Syria. There are few uh, groups which claim to be the Free Syrian Army, but their fighters migrate to any other groups which have more money and um, more arms. So it is a contradictory policy, and the policy, if the United States is going to really successfully counter ISIS, will have to become a policy to contain it and uh, fight it in both countries. The Saudis seem to be understanding this now, and they have uh, proclaimed ISIS a terrorist group. They have threatened to put people with connections, their own citizens with connections with ISIS, into prison. And also they have banned uh, funding of ISIS by their citizens. So the Saudis at least seem to have, at least in part, seen the light. Are the Saudis ready to make the next logical step from that and, as you say, to, uh, to, to drop their support for various other rebel groups in, uh, in Syria? Uh, no. They formed this uh, grouping called the Islamic Front actually to partly uh, confront ISIS and partly confront the government, but it's actually spent most of its time confronting ISIS. Um, And this group, as I said, these fighters, they migrate to the most um, opportunistic uh, formation as far as their personal um, position is concerned. And um, the Saudis will have to somehow uh, get around to the fact that they have to stop funding all these groups. The Turks are supposedly closing their borders to um, fundamentalist fighters migrating from Europe and elsewhere. Uh, It is not clear whether this has worked. I mean, Turkey has allowed in uh, thousands of Chechens and um, Tunisians and Libyans and Egyptians and so on into Syria to join these fundamentalist groups, including ISIS. And uh, the Turkish government has said it is cracking down on this um, flow, but it is not clear whether or not this is in fact happening. They also claim to have cracked down on arms smuggling, but this again is not clear. Uh, Vincent Jurak, uh, these uh, fighters that are coming from elsewhere that Michael has been talking about, how big a threat uh, do they pose to Western capitals? Uh, many of them have European passports, as we've heard. Uh, is this a real threat? Well, it's certainly a potential threat, um, but it's it really is one of the great imponderables. Um, Certainly, I think in the early stages of the fighting in Syria, there seemed to be a good deal of evidence of uh, European-born Muslims going to Syria to fight um, on the basis that they were defending their fellow Muslims. This was the the early-day rhetoric of the Spanish Civil War, in fact, which was sometimes deployed by those concerned, that this was a just cause, but that did not have ramifications for any engagement they might have with their 
their home state, their home government. Um, ISIS represents something else, of course. They represent an overt repudiation of the West, of Western state policy and indeed of the Western state system as they see it, um, as imposed in the, in the region. Um, ISIS don't quite have the same um, uh, aspirations that Al-Qaeda had, for instance, of a global caliphate. They're determined, it seems, to establish a base uh, real, real existing Islamism, if you like, in in the region, rather than something notional and hypothetical. Um, that's something more like end times. Whether or not fighters, European fighters, um, associated with ISIS, should it be defeated, will return home and wreak havoc. It, it, all it takes is one or two incidents for blowback to become very, very real. Finally, Vincent Durak, even if uh, the West and its allies succeed in defeating ISIS and that ISIS fails to create this caliphate, is there a risk that certain facts have been already created where the demographics of the region are concerned? In other words, that non-Muslim minorities may have been driven out of parts of the Middle East for good? I think that is one of the consequences of events in the region in the last couple of years, uh, not just in Iraq, but particularly there in, in recent months and years. Uh, there has been uh, a gradual wearing away, if you like, wearing down of Christian populations and uh, something more like a homogenization of the, the population uh, as a whole. And th that seems to me to be quite regrettable, but it's very hard to see how that process can be arrested. Vincent Durek and Michael Jansen, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Pakistani cricket star turned politician Imran Khan raised the stakes this week in his effort to topple the government of Nawaz Sharif. Mr Khan, who claims that the Prime Minister's supporters rigged Pakistan's most recent election, has called for a campaign of civil disobedience and for a march on Islamabad's Red Zone, the government quarter in the Pakistani capital. Meanwhile, Mr Khan's party, the second biggest opposition party in Parliament, says it's resigning all its seats. I'm joined now from Islamabad by Al Jazeera correspondent Kamal Haider. Kamal, what's happening right now in Islamabad? Well, as we speak, tensions are running high, and that is because from day one, the government has been sticking to its guns by saying that the protesters will not be allowed into the red zone. Imran Khan, speaking to a large crowd last night, said that uh, his people would be peaceful, that uh, there was no such thing as the red zone, according to the Constitution, and that everybody had the right to protest peacefully. He assured everybody that his party workers would not break even a flower pot and that he had the right, the constitutional right to go in. He also said that the police waiting on the other side would not shoot because they were also sons of the soil and therefore he did not expect any opposition. However, the move is seen as brinkmanship. Uh, the government has just announced that the military will now be guarding vital installations. That would, of course, in include the diplomatic enclave as well as radio Pakistan, uh, the television station, etc. But that the main perimeter, the outer cordon, will be manned by the police. Then there will be a second tier of the uh, constabulary forces and then the rangers. So they're using paramilitary forces, rangers. The military, of course, will only be for static uh, defense positions, only to guard vital installations. So tensions are very high. Islamabad has never seen tens of thousands of police
policemen. Some people are even saying that there are probably more security forces personnel than protesters. And speaking of those numbers of protesters, uh, Kamal, how much support does Imran Khan have? Well, Imran Khan has tremendous support. Let's not forget in the last election, despite the fact that everybody is convinced that there was serious rigging, he he came out as the third strongest party in Pakistan. So indeed a significant development. And he, of course, was angry because he said he had evidence of mass rigging that would have otherwise have given him a more powerful position. The people in Pakistan support Imran Khan because he is an honest man. He doesn't have any financial scandals around him. So the man is acceptable. He's spoken very passionately about the need to have a transparent election commission, uh, fair elections, and also so that the people of this country enjoy the benefits of democracy. So he's got the moral high ground. He's got the passion. And he's got a considerable amount of supporters. Not everybody, of course, would come out on the streets and be willing to face the security forces, but he does enjoy considerable support across the country and across the ethnic divide as well. Now, will uh, Mr. Sharif take any notice of these protests, do you think? Well, at the moment, uh, Sharif's younger brother, Shabash Sharif, is right now the chief minister of the Punjab province, which is the most powerful a province in the country has the maximum number of seats in parliament. He's the chief minister there, and he's, of course, taking heed from Dr. Tahirul Qadri because his policemen under his command, because he's the chief minister, opened fire on protesters and modeled down the hall, killed a number of his supporters. So Qadri is here with a vengeance. He wants uh, the uh, other brother to resign as well. So there is considerable pressure mounting on both Nawash Sharif and Shabazz Sharif. However, Nawaz Sharif has friends in other uh, parties as well, like the Pakistan People's Party, which was formerly led by Benazir Bhutto. And he also has considerable support from some right-wing religious parties. So Nawaz is banking on the opposition parties to say these are unconstitutional moves, and he's trying to muster strength. But it appears that he's losing the moral ground, the moral high ground on, in this particular And how, Kamal, is Pakistan's military viewing what's happening right now? Well, the Pakistani military would certainly be perturbed because it is it has launched a massive operation in North Wazirstan, which has displaced almost a million people from that region. It is still using considerable resources in a state of war and also prepared for a blowback from the Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan. So this is the last thing the military would have wanted, but they would be very careful not to get embroiled in the uh, uh, complicated and mercurial politics of Pakistan, they would like to stay on the sidelines. However, if there is an incident, if a number of people are killed, if Nawaz government overreacts, as it has already by sealing off entire chunks of the city, and if it uses force against the protesters, then it could become an ugly situation, one that may be tempting for the military as well. And could that temptation uh, mean a temptation for the military to exploit this confrontation to return to power? 
It is doubtful that the military would like to come to power at this time, given Pakistan's economic woes and the history of military interventions. But the military will come in as a last resort if it finds that things are spiraling out of control. It may come in briefly only for security affairs, but it would like to see an in-house change, perhaps if the situation does not resolve anytime soon. So the military would be reluctant, but that is something which can't be ruled out entirely. Finally, Kamal, how safe as we speak is Nawaz Sharif's hold on the premiership of Pakistan? Well, I remember saying just a few days ago that Nawaz Sharif's overreaction by putting thousands of containers blocking the entire city when they themselves say that the number of protesters is not significant shows the vulnerability of the Nawaz Sharif government. There are also scandals, uh, financial scandals. His finance minister is a controversial figure. And of course, the biggest thing is nepotism. Imran Khan is saying that 22 members of the Nawaz Sharif family are holding important positions. And they say that is totally unacceptable. No, uh, Kamal Haider in Islamabad, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>